Welcome to the Legal Toolkit, bringing you the latest legal trends and business initiatives to help you manage your law firm. Here are your hosts, experienced lawyers, writers, and entrepreneurs, Heidi Alexander and Jared Correa. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to another episode of the Legal Toolkit on Legal Talk Network. If you are looking for Orange is the New Black, you are way off. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. If you're a first-time listener, hopefully you'll become a long-time listener. And if you happen to be Donald Trump, and at the time of the publication of this podcast, you are the President of the United States, greetings from Nova Scotia, everybody. As always, I'm your host, Jared Correa, and in addition to casting this pod, I'm the founder and CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, which offers subscription-based law practice management consulting and technology services for law firms. Check us out at redcavelegal.com, that's R-E-D-C-A-V-E-L-E-G-A-L.com to find out more. You can also buy my book, Twitter in One Hour for Lawyers, from the American Bar Association, on iTunes, at Amazon, and probably also at Woozle's Children's Bookstore in Halifax. Here on the Legal Toolkit, we provide you each month with a new tool to add to your own legal toolkit so that your practices will become more and more like best practices. In this episode, we're going to talk over innovation in law schools, so this should be fun. Before I introduce today's guests, however, let's take a moment to thank our sponsors. First off, Scorpion, which delivers award-winning law firm web design and online marketing programs to get you more cases. Scorpion has helped thousands of law firms just like yours to attract new cases and grow their practices. For more information, visit scorpionlegal.com forward slash podcast. This podcast is also brought to you by Amicus Attorney, developers of legal practice management software. Let Amicus help you run your practice so you can focus on what you do best, practice law. Visit amicusattorney.com and get started today. All right, we've got a bunch of guests today, four in number, and even if that's not a record for me, it's still a lot. So here's our roster. First off, we've got Fred Rooney, who's the father of law school incubators and a 2013 ABA legal rebel. Uh, My understanding is that he still wears the official bandana around the house. Fred is an adjunct faculty member at the Texas A&M University School of Law. He was the founding director of the Community Legal Resource Network at the City University of New York Law School, where he worked for almost 15 years. He was a past director of the Toro Law Center's International Justice Center for Postgraduate Development. And more recently, he's been a Fulbright Scholar with a penchant for globetrotting. Currently, he's the commissioner of the ABA's Commission on Hispanic Rights and Responsibilities. Next up, we have Eileen Seidman, who's the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and a Clinical Professor of Law at Suffolk University Law School in Boston. After Danny Ainge, she's one of my favorite people in the city, and that's high praise. Eileen began her career at Greater Boston Legal Services. Prior to arriving at Suffolk, she was a clinical instructor at Harvard Law School for over 15 years. Under Eileen's guidance, Suffolk's Accelerator to Practice program won the ABA's Louis M. Brown Award for Legal Access in 2016. Dan Lin is the director of Legal R&D, the Center for Legal Services Innovation at Michigan State University College of Law. Before joining the faculty at Michigan State, Dan was a partner at Honigman, Miller, Schwartz, and Cohn in the litigation department. Prior to that, he was a law clerk in the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. Now, despite the fact that he graduated magna cum laude from the University of Michigan Law School of all places, Michigan still decided to hire him. 
Last but not least, we have Margaret Hagen, who's a fellow at Stanford Law's Center on the Legal Profession and a lecturer at the Stanford Institute of Design. She launched the program for legal tech and design while a fellow at the Institute of Design. Margaret's a 2013 Stanford Law graduate, and while a student there, she built Law Dojo, an interactive study app. She blogs at Open Law Lab. All right, deep breath. Fred, Eileen, Dan, and Margaret, welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thank you. All right. That was good. That was, you guys are pros. All right. Now we're going to get into the Q&A part. And this is, this is the fun part. This is going to be a nice little roundtable here. So I'm going to ask generic questions. We'll have broad-ranging discussions. And then like several million people are going to listen to what you have to say. Or maybe a slightly smaller number than that. All right. Let's do this. At this point, I think it's become pretty clear that law school should be teaching lawyers some skills in addition to the substantive law practice skills that they've always been taught. So my question to you then is which of those other skills is the most important? And let's start with Dan. Well, thanks, Jared. Uh, well, I'd say legal service delivery, right? And that, that would include teaching law students to effectively deliver legal services to those who need them. And that's something we really don't do much of in law school right now. And to effectively deliver legal services in the 21st century, we need to train T-shaped lawyers, lawyers who understand process improvement, project management, metrics for legal service delivery, data analytics, and technology. And then we need to give students projects so they can build these skills, including group projects where they learn collaboration and leadership skills. And there's really a need for, for legal service delivery skills across the whole legal industry. Doesn't matter if you wanna work in legal aid, or government, the courts, law firms, or corporate legal departments, we need to be training law students to effectively deliver legal services in all of those environments. T-shaped lawyer. I hope you have that trademarked. <laughs> I, think, I think I'd be too late on that. <laughs> Unfortunately. All right, Margaret, what do you have to say on the subject? Well, I agree with everything that was just said, and I would add a mix of design thinking, which it sounds a little bit jargony, but really it's about figuring out how to scout problems, see where there's breakdowns in the system, whether it's the organization, the firm, the court, the place that you're working, or in the service delivery, as Dan was just mentioning. Where are people really frustrated? Where are they going crazy? And then how can we train students to not only get frustrated, but scout the problems and figure out the new ways forward. So taking that leadership role, not just to be passive within the legal system that they've entered into, but to be more creative and more uh, action-oriented about figuring out whether it's a new startup or a new internal initiative that they can start to solve these problems and make the system function better. That's good. And that has broad applicability as well. All right. So we've got T-shaped lawyers. We've got design elements. So now, Fred, what say you, my friend? Well, you know, when you look at the statistics and see how many law graduates, once they get out of law school and pass the bar, go into private practice, in addition to all the, the kinds of skills that have already been mentioned, uh, I think a, a, a skill that has really been neglected and is only now somewhat being addressed in law schools is how to run a practice. And granted, you have to know how to file pleadings and to draft motions and, and do all of the the day-to-day -day tasks that a lawyer does. But if you want to be able to sustain your practice, if you have the dream of creating a community-based practice or a solo or small firm practice, uh, and you want to sustain that dream, you've got to know how to run a business. And so law schools really need to uh, continue to try to hone in on 
helping law students develop the skills that they're going to need in order to sustain a viable, an economically viable practice. Those are three great answers. What's left for Eileen Seidman? Let's find out. <laughs> Not much. This seems like um, I think we've already identified what would be a really excellent legal education. I think the only thing that's left is to think about how all of these important, the delivery of legal services, the business of law practice, technology in practice is delivered in the curriculum and thinking about um, the great strides that clinical programs have made, but most of these skills that have been identified just now are not being taught in clinical programs. So students are having client experiences without all of these other experiences, which is what we're trying to do next. And the only other thing I would add is that as part of all of this, students have to be really informed again and again, I'm a believer in repetition, in the crisis in the justice system and how all of these methods of delivery, technology, and business practices can assist in addressing that crisis. And that's almost a perfect segue to my next question, which is to talk with you a little bit about what your programs do or have done. So tell me specifically, what a student graduating from the program you're involved in would be able to pitch herself as, as a law firm associate in a way that was unique as compared to a non-program participant. Now, Fred talked about students starting their own law firms. Let's focus first on how does involvement in a clinical or accelerated program help a law student to get a job at a law firm or to better succeed at that law firm? If it's all right, Dan, let's start with you again. Sure. Well, and I think the, the key thing is it really allows our law graduates to distinguish themselves from other law graduates. And you know, law firms, legal departments are really struggling right now trying to figure out how to improve legal service delivery. And they're turning to many of the disciplines and skills that we just talked about in the last answer. And so if our law graduates can go into a law firm and during an interview talk about uh, having learned about project management in classes and actually having implemented it, when working on projects at uh, different in, in different environments, um, even you know from projects and classes to hackathons they may have participated in or mm -hmm. legal aid organizations say that they worked at during during an externship, that can really help them differentiate themselves from others. So actually, learning these skills uh, during law school gives them a, a great advantage. They, they're able to talk with some of the things that partners and law firms are struggling with right now. I mean, you're seeing more and more law firms train their partners in project management because that's what the clients are asking for. Yeah. They're asking partners to learn how to use technology to automate processes and improve legal service delivery. And that's what we're doing in the classroom. And you know, I think there's a lot of space for us to continue to do more projects as well. And that's one of the things we've been been focusing on. Uh, this semester in, in the class I'm teaching litigation, data theory, practice, and process, we partnered with ThinkSmart, and we're using their transaction automation platform and doing automation projects in the class. Mm. And, and starting with not just focusing on the technology, but thinking about bringing in elements of lean thinking and design thinking and getting them to think about really what provides value to the clients. And uh, we've had some uh, an opportunity also to work with the Corporate Legal Operations Consortium. And so hearing from the heads of legal operation at places like NetApp and Google, Yahoo, Oracle, hearing directly from clients 
how we as lawyers and, and how law firms need to do more to add value. Well, when you have a law student who goes into a law firm and interviews with a partner and has a better understanding of, of what legal services really look like and, and an understanding that goes beyond just understanding substantive law like torts and civil procedure, well, that really goes a long way towards helping them differentiate themselves and get a job. Yeah, some excellent points there. And saving the cost and time of law firm training, certainly very important. All right, let's now move to Eileen, who may be eating chicken soup on a brand new couch right now. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> well, our the, our the Accelerated Practice Program at Suffolk is really designed to prepare students throughout their legal education to join or start small or solo practices, mindful of the fact that even for those who start at a large law firm, almost, well, an overwhelming number of lawyers practicing in the private sector are in firms of 10 or fewer, ultimately, if not from the beginning. And so starting with their first year of law school, when they join the program, they're spending time in their summer internships. They have two summer internships in small partner firms where they're mentored not just to the practice, but to the business and technology practices of the firms. And to some extent, they may be introducing technology practices yeah. into firms as part of their use to them. So part of it is very simple entity formation. How do I keep my books? How do I get clients? How do I keep my clients? And really, the business practices, in addition to all of the other kinds of practices that Dan was referencing, which they are also learning. Mm -hmm. So for them, the students in the program, there's targeted experiences, there's curriculum, and then there's their entire third year is spent in a fee-generating law firm with a focus on access to justice so that they're doing the practice during their third year in a way that we hope is replicable and income-generating for them. Excellent. All right, Margaret, you're up. Yeah, I would say that the students who come out of Stanford, especially our legal design lab mixed with Codex, which has more technology focus, they come out as a new kind of problem solvers. So they're not necessarily going to a firm or another organization with their eyes shut, just kind of slotted into the typical way things are done or the typical work product to create. They're coming in with the idea of we can disrupt things from the inside, we can make things better, and they've got the literacy in these other areas outside of the world of law to solve problems in new ways, whether that's building apps and websites and other technology tools, bringing in data and AI and knowing what the future um, trends are going to be, or even just taking kind of that more approach to how the service or organization could be re-engineered to function better but they're coming out with this proactive attitude, um, not just kind of sliding along a career path, but really trying to make the systems better and define their own career. And it's great to see law students coming into law firms as new associates and having a real effect on those firms, especially in regards to technology and efficiency. All right, Fred, last but not least. It's, uh, it's very exciting because when we started the whole postgraduate movement back in the late 90s, there was virtually nothing being done to prepare law students to uh, to get out and practice law. didn't really matter if they were going into large firms or into solo or small firm practices or legal services programs. It wasn't being done. Over the course of the years, I've, I've watched the development of the skills that new graduates bring 
to the practice of law. But I really do have to say, though, in all the years that I've been involved in legal education, I never was a faculty member. I never worked directly with students. I always worked with lawyers. And, you know, year after year, it was very initially it was very depressing because we would have to, to mold people to develop the kinds of very basic skills that they needed to yeah. survive, professional skills and business skills. But, you know, when I look at something like, you know, what Eileen is doing in at, at Suffolk, and I think to myself, you know, the, our job in, in programs like incubators uh, where new lawyers are coming in to develop their skills for a period of sometimes a year, 18 months, two years, they're coming in with much stronger skills than they ever had before. And that's really because of the innovative approaches that schools like Suffolk have taken to making sure that the graduates, when they get out, have, you know, strong enough skills to be able to, to jump in. Because a lot of times you're not given a whole lot. If, if you're going with the firm, Oftentimes you have someone to hold your hand, to yeah. you know, a senior partner to yep. help you through case development, uh, or if you go with legal services or some, you know, a, a social NGO type of organization, you have somebody there. But if you don't, if you're going in on your own, which again is really the norm, it's very, very difficult. But it's very encouraging to see the, the development through teaching of technology and the development of professional and business skills going on. You know, there are law schools now. I know I was at Toro Law School, and they have a concentration on small farm practice. A concentration in a law school in the third year would have been unheard of a number of years ago. And more and more, I witnessed law schools across the United States developing very practical approaches to teaching law and graduating students who come out with, you know, almost they have a head start on, on those who are not graduating from schools that have the innovative programs like Suffolk. Yeah, I think that's some great perspective historically as well. Thanks, Fred. Yeah, and, and Michigan State and Stanford as well. <laughs> anyway, let's also uh, ask sort of the same question, but let's flip it to a student who's going to start a practice right out of law school, which Eileen talked a little bit about, Fred talked a little bit about. That's really hard to do. So since Eileen was talking about that a little bit with Suffolk's program, let's let her address this question first. How is a student in an accelerator or incubator program better prepared to start a law firm than a colleague at law school? Well, I think they're certainly better prepared because through the two summers of mentoring that's very targeted with our partners, small firms, where we give specific direction to the small firms as to the kinds of not just tasks, but the kinds of learning that we're asking the partner firm to engage in teaching the student, really opening kind of their books in a way. And I think the students really have a more realistic, both for good and for bad, sense of the challenges and the risks of starting a practice or being in a small practice. But I think that they're, as Fred said, they're, they're, you know, they're not starting from ground zero. They also understand the how the various things that Dan and Margaret are also addressing about design thinking, process improvement, project management, courses that they are required to take, mm-hmm. and the use of technology to create automated systems, both internally and for client use, yeah. how all of those things can create efficiencies in the hope that they actually could earn a living and really think about one of the things we focus with them on, particularly in the capstone third year is risk management, bringing in risk management people from various firms around Boston and case selection. How do you pick a case and how do you decide what is economically feasible for your firm? 
And I think that people have never graduated from law school understanding those things. <laughs> no, but there's first time for everything, right? <laughs> All right, uh, Margaret, what do you think on this topic? Yeah, I would say that the students are more client-focused because we have them do so many interviews and almost following people around as they're trying to figure out help for their legal problems. So they see it not just as the law student or the judge's perspective, which I think is what most traditional law schools tend to teach students to take yeah. on that persona, but instead we try to flip them to see it from the normal person's point of view. So especially if they're starting a practice that's focused kind of on that main street law market, the family law market, all of a sudden they're seeing how people talk about these things, what kind of other services they might need, how to present yourself in a way that's transparent and that kind of works with what people want from lawyers and also what they're afraid of lawyers um, based on. So we're trying to craft these students who can then see the, the dynamics that are at work right now that are usually pretty dysfunctional when it comes to client-lawyer relationships and then devise new ways either in a traditional legal practice or in a new type of startup that can um, make those relationships a little less dysfunctional and serve clients and lay people uh, in better ways. I think I may have misheard, but I think you just said that lawyers are not normal people. I'll let that one slide. <laughs> I just don't like using the word non-lawyer, you know, like <laughs> I'm trying to avoid like everyone the else who's non-lawyer lawyer lawyer. distinction, but what do you call a non-lawyer? I understand. A normal person, I a lay understand. person? Yeah. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's ask the same question of Fred. What I've noticed is that I've spent a lot of time looking at the way lawyers learn as opposed to the way students learn. And so I'll give you an example. When, when we first started the incubators, there was a, a, a professor, an adjunct professor at CUNY by the name of Laura Gentile. And Laura taught semester after semester small firm practice. And when it just so happened that when we started the first incubator in, in 2007, we landed space in Laura Gentile's law office in Midtown Manhattan. And so when the first group of lawyers who had graduated from CUNY came in to the incubator and they saw that they were being housed in the same suite as their former professor, they realized almost from the, the get-go that so much of what she taught them during their last year law school, they learned in, in a way that was more focused on how to get degreed. In other words, they developed business plans and they were somewhat theoretical because they were not really basing it on anything other than, you know, potential projections. Yeah. And a lot of the, the courses, the coursework that Laura was teaching, they tried to digest and assimilate. And, but when they got into the real world, they realized that so much of what she was teaching, they really didn't learn because, it, again, it was in a controlled environment where getting the grade was, was the goal. When they became lawyers, they then, Laura said to them, you're welcome to come back into my class and you can audit the class for the second time. And they did. And they, they, they came back and they, they learned the same material, but this time not to get the grade, but they, they learned it because they needed to survive economically. And so it was interesting to see how that, you know, in a very short period of time, the whole mode that they were using to learn changed tr dramatically. I do think one of the most important elements that I've seen in American legal education today is, is again, what uh, Eileen was talking about, the, the experience of working in a firm. That's not a classroom. It's not a law school classroom. It's true real life experience where people are 
you know, seeing the day-to-day operations of a law firm. And, and law schools, and there are lots of them, they're developing an uh, increasing number of law schools are creating programs where, where their law students get out into the real world and, and develop real-world experiences. Yeah, and that's certainly a good thing. Um, Legal Toolkit producer Lawrence Coletti suggests that non-lawyers be called muggles from now on. So if that works for everybody, <laughs> I think that's where we're going to go with. Um, <laughs> now, last but not least on this question, Dan Lina, how do you think your students at Legal R&D are better prepared to start a law firm? Well, you know, I'm, I'm really not encouraging law students to go out and start their own law firm. Uh, you know, I think <laughs> there right. is Don't this do idea it. <laughs> among... Well, you know, and, and, and I think that I'm, to answer the question I, directly, I agree with students, that. I agree with him too. I mean, I think students students who go through the incubators that like Eileen has set up and that Fred has helped set up, and who take the classes that Margaret's offering at Stanford and that that we're offering here at Michigan State are definitely better prepared that they could start their own law firm. But I think there's also this idea among some that law graduates can, you know, if they don't get a job, they could hang out their shingle do some wills, divorces, and small contract disputes and so on and make a living. But like <laughs> yeah. you pointed out, Jared, that's extremely difficult to do. Now, but those same skills, I really think you need to take that kind of thinking. And even if you're going into a law firm, even a large law firm, and you really need to be thinking about how am I going to build a practice? Right? Yeah. So how am I going to develop the skills and legal expertise that clients want? And I think Margaret really touched on something when she was talking about training our students to really be proactive. And one of the things that we've been doing at Michigan State, I was working in career development, and now I'm focused on legal R&D, but when I was doing that, we had, we've been really building out this summer career jumpstart program. And before students even start, we're getting them to read the startup of you and getting them to, to think about, well, where do I want to be? What do I want to be doing? What are the unique skills I bring to the table? What kind of skills can I develop when I'm in law school so I can you know, have the career that I want to have? And you know, part of that of what I've been talking about so far, right, is a lot about legal service delivery. And we teach a lot of that in the legal R&D program. But there's also a lot of opportunities at the intersection of law and technology. And yes. I've got so many examples of students, like, for example, a student we had Pamela Morgan on campus last year talking about blockchain technology. Mm-hmm. And one of our students jumped on that, started learning about it, started experimenting with it, got active on social media. And before he knew it, there were employers who were reaching out to him and offering him internships because they're looking, they're hungry to find people who are interested in this and, and yeah. lawyers who want to learn about the area and try to help solve the problems in that space. And there are tons of emerging areas where students can carve out a niche for themselves, information privacy and security law, 3D printing, drones, driverless cars, automation and artificial intelligence and the way it's being implemented in in so many places, criminal justice, medicine, credit scoring, human resources. I mean, we've got so many lawyers who have no idea what an algorithm is and who just kind of don't want to dig in at all to what it means, how artificial intelligence works. It's not a black box. It's not... It's something that we can teach in law schools and, and, and our students can start learning about it and they can develop an, a niche for themselves and really help build a really great career for themselves. Uh, just to follow up on that for a minute. Yeah, go ahead. Um, if I could just follow up on that for a minute, that one of the things that our current dean, Andy Perlman, who founded the Institute for Law Practice Technology and Innovation, has created something that we hope will catch on, which is a legal technology audit for students so that they are, do not graduate from law school without some basic technology skills that they can bring into wherever they're working in the private sector or the public sector. And 
law firms and certainly in the private sector are looking for that kind of efficiency in the lawyers that they are sometimes paying huge fees to um, who cannot perform very basic technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, two other points to extract from what uh, Dan was talking about is one, you know, just because you start working in another firm doesn't mean you're foreclosed forever from starting your own law firm. And, and it does help right. to get some experience first. And the other thing is, yes, there are a lot more jobs now than there have ever been before for lawyers in legal technology and non-traditional legal careers. So I think that's those are all great points that you guys have brought up. All right, so I'm almost trolling now. But here's the last question for the first half of the show. And my challenge to you all is tell me in 30 seconds or less your description of the perfect incubator program. Margaret, go. Uh, Students are paired with a possible client, and they have to build a project with a strong business model that serves that client. And then they have to actually launch it and get to market. Very nice. I hope the muggles understood that answer. All right, Dan, you're next. Well, just to build on, I think, something Fred said earlier, to have a perfect incubator program, I think it would really help to have law schools providing a stronger foundation in legal service delivery. We need to be doing more in the law schools. And then I think then the incubator programs, they could really unleash students to be innovative and entrepreneurial. All right, uh, Fred, you're next. A perfect law incubator would be one that, as a focus, and this is perhaps my own prejudice, but the focus would be on access to justice. It would be using the 18 months that lawyers are in a legal incubator to help address the unmet legal needs of people all over the country. Lawyers would be trained in specific areas like immigration, housing, family law, to be able to, during the period of the 18 months, use the skills to resolve or or try to deal with the unmet legal needs of millions of people in this country who have no hope or prayer of ever being able to get access to a lawyer. Certainly a noble goal. Um, All right, Eileen. I agree with everything Fred said with one change. I think the perfect incubator should be a substitute for the third year of law school. Oh, wow. Bold. I like that. All right. We're going to end on that note. (laughs) That's the equivalent of a mic drop, I think. So now we're going to stop innovating for like 30 seconds, but we'll be back before you know it with more from Fred Rooney, Eileen Seidman, Dan Lena, and Margaret Hagen. But before you go grab a snack, I want to tell you a little more about our sponsors. These days, law firms need to do more with less. Making this happen requires efficient, cost-effective tools that work the way you do. Available as a desktop or cloud solution, Amicus Attorney Practice Management Software improves the organization of your firm and drives your bottom line. Visit amicusattorney.com to discover how you can join the thousands of lawyers who rely on Amicus every day to run their practices. Not getting enough cases from the internet or the kind of cases you want? Scorpion can help. Over the last 15 years, Scorpion has helped thousands of law firms just like yours to attract new cases and to grow their practices. During this time, Scorpion has won over 100 awards for its law firm website design and online marketing success. Join the thousands of law firms that partner with Scorpion and start getting more cases today. For more information, visit scorpionlegal.com forward slash podcast. Go ahead then, get your snack on. Thanks for rejoining us. How was your kombucha? We're continuing with our deep dive into innovation in law schools with Fred Rooney, Eileen Seidman, Dan Lina, and Margaret Hagen. And let's jump right back into it. So 
What is or was the interplay like at your schools between traditional substantive classes and those instructors and the more innovative curriculum and the new faculty that teach them? And let's start this time with Eileen. Well, it, this is a really tough challenge. Law faculty, mostly, unless you're in the clinical program and in our experience in the legal writing program, are pretty removed from practice. Mm. And that's the cause of some great scholarship innovation in law schools, but also for innovation in the new ways that legal services are being delivered and certainly in technology. Although one of the things I have found is that we have members of the doctrinal faculty who are actually very technologically oriented and have never thought about or been given the opportunity to think about how they can bring those skills into the classroom and into the concept of lawyering. So that's been a new and interesting development. But that is a huge challenge that law schools face, and that's always been a challenge with um, differences between people who practice like clinical faculty and people who do not, mainly the doctrinal faculty. It sounds like he's drawing some of the doctrinal faculty out of their shells, which is good. All right, Fred, you're up. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm probably not the best person to address this subject simply because I've not worked as a member of the faculty. I I sort of say I've always, I pride myself on the fact that I've never been on a faculty because I didn't. (laughs) We'll we'll let you wing it, though. (laughs) No, no. I just have to say that I'm a product of CUNY Law School. I started CUNY in 1983. And that was a mm-hmm. brand new law school that had a brand new mission. It was a social justice mission. And all of the methods that were used in teaching legal education were completely innovative. Some thought to be, you know, unorthodox. But the bottom line is, you know, I learned so much during the years I was at CUNY. And this, again, we're talking about the dark ages, right? But, <laughs> but you know, I really loved law schools, especially the law schools. You know, the, the folks who are in this particular program come from some of the most innovative law schools in, in the country. And I just realized the value of when your law school is willing to kind of go out on the limb, you know, take some risks in, in trying to incorporate new ways of teaching law, new concepts for teaching law, that it has a, an impact, a transformative impact on students. And so... Not having the background as a faculty member, that's about all I'm going to say, but uh, <laughs> I really do love the efforts of the, the institutions that are represented in this podcast. All right, Mr. Dan, your faculty. Have it's at not it. the norm either. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, just two years ago, I was still at Honigman litigating you know, troubled supplier disputes. So <laughs> I haven't been in the academy for long, yeah. and it's really only recently that I turned to teaching full-time. But, uh, you know, we've got some of our full-time faculty members who are doing some really interesting things here and, and picking up on some of these concepts and thinking about how blockchain technology, for example, can be introduced in contracts classes and things like that. You know, I think it's the same those across the industry, and, and it's a change management component to all of this. And mm-hmm. change is hard for everyone and maybe lawyers and law students especially. And I yep. think that those of us who are interested in legal innovation and technology, uh, including because it being so important to expand access to legal services, well, we need to do a better job of explaining to faculty, students, practitioners, and the public why this is so important. And most of us that are involved in law, we want to help people, right? And, and what better way to help people than to expand access to legal services? And there's tremendous promise here. 
And lawyers have a very important role to play, but too many lawyers, too many of us, were standing by the sidelines while technologists and others push things forward. And if we're not careful, uh, we could become irrelevant. And so that's one of the things that I think is so important too about, it's, it's not just the technology, but it is thinking about process improvement and project management. And in connection with process improvement, we talk about lean thinking. We also talk about design thinking. And as Margaret pointed out, that's all about being client-centric and thinking about how do we provide value to clients. And when we decompose legal matters, we're finding more and more things that don't need to be done by lawyers. They can be done by allied professionals. They can be done by others. And it's important, I think, though, that we as lawyers are involved and study this because we can provide great value, but we need to do a better job of explaining that the value that we provide in these different areas. We need to kind of have a seat at the table. We need to contribute more to improve access to legal services for everyone in this space. Dropping a bunch of great segues there, Dan. All right, so first we're going to move to segue number one, which is Margaret, and then we're going to move to segue number two, which is allied professionals. So uh, before we get there, though, Margaret, uh, what do you have to say on the subject of faculty? Well, I agree with everything that's been said, and I'd say that it's a delicate dance. Faculty don't tend to take this type of innovation approach to legal services or to teaching law. So, and they're really in control of the law school. They're the stakeholders that need to be convinced that these new approaches are really worthwhile and that they belong inside the university and not in a more private sphere. So I found a lot of luck in coming to them on their own terms, which is trying to make their own research more public, more available, and generally more appreciated. So a lot of them are a little bit intimidated by technology or kind of new methods. So I've done a lot of co-teaching with more traditional faculty to expose them to how these new methods can benefit their own research, whether it's in making websites of their databases, making things kind of come alive with these new approaches and showing them the payoff that it can have for their own practice and make them just a little bit less intimidated and a less us versus them situation, which often it can be, even yeah. among the students. There are a lot yeah. of students who want the more traditional type of law education, but mm-hmm. increasingly there are those who want the more entrepreneurial path, um, and that's often the biggest leverage that the new types of teachers have is the student demand and yeah. the payoff that we can have for those different kinds of law careers uh, that they can then build. Yeah, absolutely. Clearly, there are some generational issues here as well, but we're not going to get into those because we only have so much time. Margaret, we're going to stay with you. So tell me, what do you think the role of non-lawyer professionals is in an innovative law school curriculum? So I am a big believer in having non-lawyers in the room, both when teaching law students and then also when they're launching their projects. So I try to have designers, technologists, computer scientists, business people come in and review the students' work, tell them why it will work, why it won't work when they're coming up with new ideas or new projects. And I also am trying to have the lawyers or the law students think about a team-based approach to whatever they're going to do after law school and Mm. how to bring how do I not phrase it as non-lawyers, other types of professionals uh, onto muggles. their Muggles, I thought we went over this. Muggles, <laughs> bring the muggles in. <laughs> so trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to tamp down that approach that lawyers are always the smartest people in the room and always yeah. know how to solve a given problem the best way. Mm. So we're trying to build those interdisciplinary links in law school with the goal that when the law students become practitioners, 
they know how to draw upon technologists, designers, business leaders to build those new types of solutions and not always think that the lawyer knows best. So it's all right to be one of several smart people in the room. Absolutely. All right, uh, Eileen, you're up on this one. Well, we actually long ago had a rule that the only people who were could be in the classroom teaching students had to be lawyers. Mm-hmm. And we obliterated that rule in favor <laughs> of uh, we've had social workers working in clinics. Many clinics do. We have um, a design course taught by someone who's actually worked with Margaret at Stanford, who is a lawyer with a partner of his at Fidelity, who is not a lawyer. We have a client retention, client services course that is taught by a professional in that field. And increasingly, students have to see that they will be working with people who are not lawyers, who bring a tremendous amount of knowledge and experience to what they need to learn to be good at whatever it is they do. And I think for the students, I don't see it for them as an issue. They are used to a different approach in their medical care and in many other areas. And I I don't see that it's an issue for them. Hmm. Fred, bring in the non-lawyers. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. There's not a lot of it going on, I don't think, in areas of solo or small firm practices across the country. And I think that the reason that is is the case is because there's not enough of it being taught or there's not a lot of the interdisciplinary approach to the teaching of law. And so therefore, when students graduate, they don't have a sense of, of what it really means to work in conjunction with you know, healthcare providers or, or social workers. I mean, they do when a case may involve you know, a, a contact with a social worker. Yeah. But it's really, it's, it's, it's quite backwards in terms of the, you know, the day-to-day practice of law. And so as it expands, um, you know, it's very encouraging. I think the most interesting movement that's happened uh, is the movement of physicians and lawyers, you know, starting out of Boston and, and um, the medical uh, legal collaborations that have developed. Yeah. But, you know, there's, there's, there's also the need for you know, lawyers to be working directly with people in all kinds of other disciplines. And so it, it just makes the practice of law, I think, more interesting and in the ability to really serve the needs in a holistic approach um, to our clients. Yeah. Now, Dan, what do you think of the interdisciplinary approach? Well, I'm a big fan of it. And, uh, you know, allied professionals is the term that Bill Henderson uh, at Indiana has been talking about here. And I think, yes, there's a lot of room to, to work with allied professionals. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited to be here at Michigan State at a, at a major research university where there's no shortage of people for me to work with. And, uh, you know, all last year, I worked with Jim Manley, um, who is at the Broad Business School. He's been doing process improvement in the automotive industry and also in uh, different service settings, including hospital settings, for a long time now, over 30 years. And we did a lean thinking project at Elder Law of Michigan. We were there for a year with a, a team of students and uh, working with their lawyers, looking at how to apply lean thinking to improve legal service delivery been uh, working with, there's a design thinking program here, been working with, with their dean and with some faculty there. We've got one of the top ranked supply chain schools and the people in the supply chain school are excited about how service supply chain research can be applied to law practice and legal service delivery. Data analytics mm-hmm. program in the, in the business school, been working there. We've got some of our students who are going over to that program, one who was just hired by Juristat 
to go in and work as a data science, opportunities to work with, with um, the computer science school. We have them coming in and talking about all the you know, technology topics that are hot and then things like security law for lawyers, getting them to learn in those areas. So, so many opportunities with allied professionals. And, you know, I think in that same realm, one of the things I'd mention is that you know, I think it's great that Margaret, with design thinking and, and with lean thinking, you know, we're talking about the clients and, and Eileen and Fred are doing things. We're actually working with clients. There's so much more I think we need to do with clients and bringing clients into the fold here. Corporate mm-hmm. clients, uh, talking about consumer clients, and there's a lot that needs to be learned about how we can improve services for clients by working with clients. Yeah. And it's also true that one of the easiest ways probably to access allied professionals would be other schools at universities. So let's talk about access to justice. And we're going to start with Fred, because I know this is uh, near and dear to his heart. So what immediate effects can law schools with innovative curricula have on access to justice issues? I think that the the biggest contribution that law schools are making in, in access to justice can be seen through students who graduate and have been through a clinical program. Because, you know, whether it's dealing with family law issues or immigration issues or or consumer debt, you name it, when they've had some practical exposure to these areas of law that are so pressing across the country, they can almost from day one get in and begin representing clients. There's not this, you know, six-month, one-year period where they're they're learning the law. They've learned it. And so, you know, I I really think that the, the clinical types of approaches, whether it's, you know, creating incubators in a third year or just the, you know, increasing in clinical programs across the country is really makes it a much more practical approach to learning and ultimately provides students and law graduates with the skills that they need to to begin to practice immediately and practice well. Mm -hmm. All right, let's uh, move to Dan then. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I'd just like, I'd like to do more projects like the one we're doing with Elder Law of Michigan, where we bring out students and um, we're, we're working with the lawyers and paralegals and, and other professionals at Elder Law and thinking about how do we improve? How do we serve more people with the resources that they have there? I, I think it's also important that it's, it's interesting because I think, I don't know that all students get exposure as far as th- that they need to understand the real scope of the access problem. And, um, you know, they get bits and pieces of it, but I think it's really important that we raise awareness about the problem, right? And, and you know, the statistics, 80% of the impoverished don't get the legal services they need, more than half the middle class, and many businesses don't get the legal services they need. And one of my favorite uh, statistics is just talk about the work the World Justice Project did, where it looked at ranked 99 countries on accessibility and affordability of civil justice, and the United States ranks 65th tied with Botswana, Pakistan, and Uzbekistan. Hmm. You know, that to me is shocking and embarrassing as a lawyer. And uh, so raising awareness and and, uh, I think is is also an important piece of that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Margaret, what do you have to say on access to justice issues and innovative curriculum? Well, this has become my focus over the past year and a half, especially. I started out broadly innovation in law, but I really think access is where law schools can be a real driver for change. And also, there's so much hunger and willing to experiment, at least here in the courts in California, that it's a really ripe area with willing partners who want students to come in and kind of mess around with the organization and say, what if we tried this? Can we run a pilot for three months on this? What can we transform? Like people are hungry, especially for law school involvement. So there's a real chance for leadership here. So we've been working on two tracks here at Stanford on trying to um, increase access. 
One is on the internet because we know more people are searching on Google than other search engines to try to find help, figure out the problem, and then uh, find the process. So we're working with the search engines to develop kind of standard ways of tagging up and marking up the content that lives out on the web, on court sites, on pro bono sites, on public help sites, that all of that can then be searched and served up to people on search engines in better ways. Mm -hmm. So that involves kind of the more tech approach where we're teaching students what ontologies are, how to mark up documents, how to mark up websites, how to make things smarter. And that kind of goes into the computable contracts and computable law area. So that's for our techie students. Mm -hmm. But then for our more public interest students who aren't as tech-oriented, we're doing the kind of front-lines classes where we're having students show up to court and kind of do the tag-along walkthrough of what it's like to try to get a divorce, get child custody, work out child support, deal with debt issues. We're then using that student on the frontline experience to brainstorm and come up with really quick pilots and prototypes that are not expensive to implement, that are not time-consuming to implement, but how we change signage, how we change language, how we change all the paper documents and things on the frontline experience of access that are kind of easy to fix, but just the courts don't know where to start and don't have the capacity to actually change it. So the students are learning design skills, how to actually make the service and the visuals better. Uh, And they also can see their projects actually implemented in a really quick way. So we're trying lots of different types of classes to solve this problem and, yeah, trying to get as many students who are typically access to justice oriented involved in this type of work. You sound really excited about that. Those sound like (laughs) cool projects. Now, last person on this question is going to be Eileen. So have at it. This is, I feel like this is my life's work of 40 years. It just changes <laughs> right. form every encapsulate decade or so. It, encapsulate um, it in two minutes. <laughs> so here's what I would say. I think we have to, law school should rethink the concept of pro bono and really look at access to justice as being what we're really focusing students on and that every student should have an experience that increases access to justice before they graduate from law school. And that includes things like Margaret was talking about, Mark Lauritsen introduced a course, Loring Age and Smart Machines for Us, is now being taught by a member of the faculty. And every student in that class does a project that is for a legal aid across the country or another nonprofit to help increase access to the justice system. And I think all of our students should be engaged in that kind of work. We have somebody who is the state, until recently was the state access to justice coordinator in the state court system, teaching a course at Suffolk. And I hired her specifically for that reason, to bring that issue into the law school. And I think that we worked with our Supreme Court in the state, access to justice is now a topic on the Massachusetts bar exam. And we're very involved in the State Access to Justice Commission. And I think that when law schools have a presence on these issues, the students are aware of it, and it becomes part of what they understand their obligation is. And I also think we should be looking at student practice rules, which limit students' abilities to represent clients in certain income groups and types of practice. And I think we really should look at those in light of the crisis in the justice system. And finally, I think that law schools really do have a role to play in scholarship on access to justice and on 
evaluating and doing data analysis and really the kind of expensive work that people in the field do not have the either the expertise, the money, or the time to do because they're on the front lines. And that is a role yeah. law school should play, and we have not been playing that role. Not yet, at least. All right, and that brings me to my next question. Now it's your chance to become prognosticators. So name one thing that law schools are going to be doing in the next five years that they're not doing yet in terms of innovation. And we'll start with Dan on this one. Sure. I think Eileen pointed out a great thing is that the opportunities for scholarship in this area, especially working with different industry partners in the legal aid space, you're going to see more and more law schools with innovation and technology programs looking for ways to move that into the first year, move it into doctrinal classes. There's lots of space to do that right now in the current, under the current regulatory regime. But to really allow law schools to innovate, I think we're going to have to see reform from the ABA level, right? Reform, yeah. Reforming the bar exam. I think despite that, there's still lots of room for law schools to innovate. So that really shouldn't be an excuse. But I, I mean, I think a, a step forward is the uniform bar exam. I wish we had that here in Michigan. Uh, but there's there's a lot that can be done. So we really don't need 200 law schools that all look very, very much the same, uh, more so than they do different. We I'd, I'd like to see a lot more differentiation across law schools. And we're going to start seeing that over the next five years. You are a rebel, Mr. Lena. <laughs> all right. Margaret, what's your prediction? I would say the third year is going to be very, very different, and I think increasingly so, but I think the third year is going to be less a continuation of the same old, same old law classes and more of that runway for students to choose their point of view, choose the type of career that they want to be planning for, and then having a much more project-based year, whether it's in placement with an existing organization or incubating their own new startup or new initiative. But I think the third year is going to be much more student-driven and much more career-focused. Excellent response. All right. Eileen, your turn to predict the future. I don't know if this is what I think will happen or this is just what I desperately hope will happen. (laughs) But I do believe that at some point, even into the first year of law school, we will have the incorporation of new ways of thinking and the use of technology. It's really doesn't make any sense for people to learn the law of contracts without also understanding the mechanisms and tools out there to help them draft contracts. And that's my hope, and I'm going to believe it's going to happen. That's a good point. Last but not least, and the last response we're going to get in this whole podcast, Fred, in the next five years, what do you think law schools are going to be doing differently? Sure. I agree that the, the, the biggest change will probably be seen in the third year of law school. And just like others have said, I I hope that it's revamped in a way that makes it a lot more practical. You know, I also think that that law schools are going to be brought in kicking and screaming into the the age of technology because, you know, I I travel across the country and with the exception of some of the schools who are that are represented in in this podcast, schools are still way behind in technology. Faculty members don't have a deep sense of what it means to, to get on board and learn how just how technology can be used to increase teaching and learning and, and ultimately increase access to justice. So, you know, it's, as has been mentioned, a, a real change in the way law schools deal with the first year, and then hopefully there'll be a dramatic change in the third year so that by after the second year, people have the ability to start putting into practice what they've been learning. Thanks, Fred. All right, so we'll do this again in 2021 and see if you guys are right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> so that's going to do it for another episode of the Legal Toolkit. This is a great one. Um, but I'll be back next month with further insights into my soul, the soul of America, and the legal market. But if you're feeling nostalgic for my dulcet tones, you can check out our entire show archive anytime you want at LegalTalkNetwork.com. So big thanks to Fred Rooney, Eileen Seidman of Suffolk University Law School, Dan Linna of Michigan State University College of Law, and Margaret Hagen of Stanford Law for hanging with us today to talk about innovation in law schools. So Fred, can you tell folks how to get more information about you? Sure. Uh, for people interested in learning more about incubators, I can be uh, reached at Fred P. Rooney, P as in Patrick, Fred P. Rooney, all one word, at gmail.com. I'd be happy to answer any questions that people may have. All right. Send those emails in. Now, Eileen, can you tell people how to find out more information about you and about Suffolk Law? Sure. Uh, I can be reached at iSeidman, I-S-E-I-D-M-A-N, at Suffolk.edu. I'm happy to hear from anyone. And people can also read about the Law Practice Technology and Innovation Program and the Accelerated Practice Program on the Suffolk website. Excellent. All right, Dan, your turn to tell everybody a little bit more about yourself, how to find you, and legal R&D. Sure. You can find me on Twitter, Dan Linna, D-A-N-L-I-N-N-A is my handle there. Uh, legal R&D is also on Twitter. That's L-E-G-A-L-R, the letter N, the letter D. Uh, our Legal R&D website is www.legalrnd.org. And my email is Linna Dan, L-I-N-N-A-D-A-N, at msu.edu. If you're an aspiring law student interested in uh, innovation and technology, I encourage you to reach out and consider coming to a place like Michigan State. Leading with Twitter. I like you. Last but not least, Margaret, can you tell folks how to find out more information about you and about Stanford Law's efforts in legal innovation? Sure. I think Twitter is the best place to find me. I'm at Margaret Hagen. And come visit Legal Design Lab's website. It's legaltechdesign.com. And there you'll see our projects, our workshops, uh, our students, all of that. All right. Check out all these folks. They're affiliated institutions. Clearly, they're great. They put up with me for an hour. And so have you. So thanks again to Fred, Eileen, Dan, and Margaret. And especially thanks to all you out there, our listeners. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Legal Toolkit, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join Heidi and Jared for their next podcast, covering the current business trends for law firms. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson. 
to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the unbillable hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.